fam. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman, here with a fun episode with my good friend, fellow trail running super fan, Mr. Dominic Grossman. This being Hard Rock Week, we thought it would be fun to do a deep dive on this fantastic event to set the context for the weekend more than just a race preview. We dubbed this episode a love letter to Hard Rock. It was our intention to share some of our memories and some of our knowledge of the race to help future hard rockers approach this event armed with a little bit more information and also to help general trail running fans to get a higher definition picture of what makes hard rock hard rock i hope this could be an evergreen episode that will remain relevant before hard rock in coming years minus the specific comments that we make about this the 2023 edition we go deep on the course in the counterclockwise direction, highlighting all of our favorite and least favorite stretches. We have a couple pearls of wisdom from Jeff Browning. We talk briefly about this year's field, course, and weather conditions. And then we close the show with our good friend, Mr. Ryan Thrower, who presents a bunch of listener questions about Hard Rock that we mow through at the end of the episode. This one was super fun to record. It's also pretty long, so we'll get right to it. But before we do of course i need to give a big thanks to our presenting sponsor speedland my personal footwear partner and the makers of the gs tam dave dombrow and kevin fallon are en route to silverton now to experience hard rock for the first time themselves both myself and teammate avery collins are running this year avery will be rocking a brand new prototype of his yet to be released signature speedland commission which we're planning to unveil early next year so keep your eyes out for that it's the extension of the legacy sl platform the shoe is absolutely sick so if you're in silverton make sure you keep your eye out for avery and look at his footwear for now go grab a pair of the gs tam which is available now or grab the gs pgh the cam haynes commission which is on pre-sale at the moment with shipment anticipated in the fall both models are available at runspeedland.com and you can grab a sweet 10 percent discount by using free trail 10 runspeedland.com use code free trail 10 finally if you enjoy free trail you would love the free trail pro community use our training plans join our slack community of passionate trail runners from around the world enjoy our weekly office hour zoom calls where we host special guests and talk about training nutrition and other topics you can get discounts on our merch and with our brand partners you get early access to our events including gorge waterfalls and a certain new thing that we're going to be announcing very soon uh membership is only ten dollars a month or 96 dollars for the year and there is a free trial find out more at freetrail.com or at the link in the show notes i hope you guys all enjoy the episode with dom we'll speak to you soon after hard rock make sure you tune into the aravipa live stream i think harmony and ryan will also be posting stuff from both my instagram account and the free trail account so you can follow along there too wish me luck Dominic Grossman, welcome back to the podcast, buddy. How are you? Oh, it's so good to be back here, and especially in living color here in, in Silverton, Colorado. <laughs> the wildflowers right now are, are just starting to peak right now. We went up to Island Lake yesterday. Holy smokes, just columbines going off left and right, just every kind of type of Indian paintbrush, everything going off. So I'm, I feel bad for you. You're probably going to be going through it through night, but man, it's good to be back here and see, see you and, and 
as you prepare for your journey around the San Juans. Yes. Thank goodness. A journey that you and I have both made. We're going to sort of approach this podcast as not only a hard rock preview for 2023, but hopefully you and I can dispense some wisdom for future hard rockers, people who arrive here in Silverton with the good fortune of also tackling this mighty hundred mile loop through the San Juan starting and finishing two blocks from where we sit here at the Silverton high school. Dominic, maybe first tell the people about your history with the race. I know you have three finishes, maybe walk people through that at a high level. Yeah. So, you know, I got started ultra running in 2008, uh, 2010. I was, uh, on a Friday night date at home with my then girlfriend, now wife, Katie Grossman. And we started looking at pictures of the course. Um, it was like a course uh, preview, um, where you could go section by section and, and they kind of point out, you know, this is this cane, this is that cane, and this is where you're running to. And, and we, uh, came across a picture of Cunningham Gulch and we just, our jaws just dropped because you know, the, the, the view from the top of green mountain or, uh, above, uh, Cunningham, it's, it's just a wall. It's yep. like a little Yosemite Valley without the granite, you know, it's just a wall. And the, the you know, description said the trail continues from one and a half miles up, you know, 2,500, 3,000 feet or something. And I was like doing the math. I was like, this thing is like 20%. This is like, in, and this is mile 90 in some directions. Like this is insane. This is nuts. And so after that date, we went out in 2011, um, the Currys, uh, Nick and Jamil Curry, their whole family was out here. We, uh, we just drove out with no plans, just had a, a little Volvo sedan and our camping gear camped on the floor, their floor and their, uh, uh, cabin they were renting. Um, went out, just saw the course, did everything we could to just watch it and observe it. Uh, I put in for it and I got in the first time 2012 as is typical as is, well, I mean, I guess I was lucky, uh, or unlucky and now you look at it. But, uh, man, I got this, my socks knocked off. I trained my butt off for it. Um, actually tore my calf early in the year, um, trained for it, trying to do, you know, high vert weeks. Um, lucky it, it repaired in time. But then by the time the race came, ran it and like just over 30 hours, I was puking my guts out, just, you know, falling down, just having a miserable time coming from sea level. Um, I got done and a week later I got kidney stones. That was the only time I got kidney stones in my life. So hard rock really did me pretty well. <laughs> I didn't apply for another six years. <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> Trauma, very traumatized. Still get a little traumatized on some parts of the course, some PTSD, but um, came back then in 2021 and ran in 32 hours. And then uh, ran last year, found out um, after the race I had COVID, which is why I got in on a race morning because the race director was saying, hey, if you have COVID or if you're nervous, you can defer. So I was on the wait list. I was way back there. I was like 50th on the wait list at the start. And then all of a sudden race morning, uh, I get a phone call from, um, uh, race director. He's like, you want to, you want to run? You can run. You're in. <laughs> yep. Okay. I'm doing it. <laughs> no way. And so, yeah. Uh, lace my shoes up, no drop bags, just kind of wing it. And, uh, yeah, that took 36 hours, but I did get COVID during the race. So <laughs> Absolutely. my throat was like completely raw, swallowing glass. I felt like I was swallowing glass and just completely miserable. So yeah. this year I did not sign up because good luck is uh, sometimes too, too much of a good thing. So yeah, that's kind of my history, but we've been coming here just about every year other than the birth of our firstborn. He was born on July 18th. 
Um, so every other year that we've come since 2011, so yeah, it's been pretty it, fun. It's so funny, dude. And like, of course you and I have so much in common and we've known each other since we first got into the sport way back in 2008. We'll talk through some of our memories from the race, but I also came for the first time in 2011, paced Joe Grant that year, who also had a vision quest. And I've also been coming back basically every single year since 2011. I only have one finish. You have three, but other than that, we have a lot in common. He, but he, did he see a mountain lion that year? He thought he saw, saw a mountain, mountain lion. Yeah, he thought yeah. he saw a lion. There aren't mountain lions around here. They don't really exist, but yeah. For, for those who want the deeper version of that story, go back and listen to my episode with Joe Grant a few years ago. It's a classic episode and we recount that whole vision quest through the night that we shared together, which is now a happy memory. Now that the pain has faded away with 12 years of distance, quickly tell the story of Katie also being uh, awaiting her potential chance in the Silverton gym on race morning. Yeah. So, uh, Katie, of course your wife, my Katie wife. Yeah. So, you know, she's, uh, we always talk about in our family. She is the most unlucky one. And I'm the most lucky one. And, you know, truth be told, we started playing in for hard rock at the same time. It took her, uh, I think five years. Yeah. 2016. She's on the wait list. Number one on the wait list in the gym, all laced up, ready to go. And she's hoping, praying that, okay, it's 10 minutes before the start. Come on. I, I mean, I gotta be in, I gotta be in. And they were actually calling the number of the person who was just ahead of her and you need to check in. You have 10 seconds to check in. And, she, and we're like, and I'm like, what? look at my watch. And I'm like, nope, 10 seconds is gone. All right, you're in, you're running, you're running, Katie. Nope, the guy comes sprinting across the gym. And then they announce the race field is full and there will be no more <laughs> wait list people added. And the first thing I thought was like, oh man, I guess we're not having a kid this year. Because <laughs> we, were, we were talking about her plan on it, but <clears throat> not having a kid this year. So then the next year she actually got in fully, um, and she got to run, but man, she just was bawling her eyes on the gym oh, and it was like, it was hard for about an hour. And then she was back to, you know, having fun and, yeah. you know, she got to drink beers during the race. Other people, I, had I was going to say, it's probably mixed emotions, right? Like yeah. when you get into hard rock, it's a fantastic opportunity, but probably for both of you, there's a small sigh of relief. Her saying, Oh, thank goodness. I don't have to make this crazy hundred mile journey through the mountains and use simultaneously. Oh, thank goodness. I don't need to babysit her through this super intense transcendental experience, but she has a finish. And, uh, so the yeah. whole family are hard rockers and now the next generation, both Goldie and Lindy are here and they'll be able to observe this year's field, which will contain yours. Truly. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I figured it'd be fun for you and I, Dom, as two guys, two aging dads who are about the same age, who've been in the sport for the same time to sort of share some of our early memories from the race. I figured maybe I'll get us started with the 20, the 2008 race, which is the year that you and I both got into the field. So maybe with that as a prompt, you can enlighten the listeners as to what I'm referencing. Yeah. Um, you know, hard rock wasn't always this, this gigantic, you know, um, attractor of eyeballs, um, you know, or started back in the nineties and through the early two thousands, it wasn't this like uh thing that people were really drawn to because I think the media was a little bit lacking. There were some amazing pictures. Um, you'd see an ultra, uh, ultra running magazine and stuff, but just wasn't a big competitive event, something that people you know cared a lot about. And, um, the 2007, 2008, uh, age, was, you know, when minimalism was in the inception of minimalism 
And there was a runner, Kyle Skaggs, ran for New Balance. And he started just killing races, just one after another. And he had like wins at Wasatch and a few others. Um, and he was just, you know, phenomenal runner. Um, and he ended up coming in 2008 out to Hard Rock, out to Silverton, um, was here for a few months beforehand. He was a hydrologist, mountain hydrologist. So he'd run up, you know, check out the lakes, um, do some research, um, you know, get some miles in. And he was running, you know, some crazy, you know, 100 plus mile weeks up here, which 100 mile week up here is not easy. Like, you know, one mile feels like five miles if you're, you know, on the right grade and the altitude's kicking your butt. Um, but he got, you know, in wicked shape, knew the course perfectly. And he was, you know, kind of the pre-Anton. Everyone knows Anton Kapritschka, but uh, Anton's, you know, um, peer at the time, also in for New Orleans, was uh, Kyle Skaggs. He'd have a one water bottle in his pack, a little lightweight jacket, no shirt, maybe a tank top, and that was it. And he just would fill his bottle in the streams and he'd have a, uh, you know, gels that he'd, he'd stuff in his pockets, he had kangaroo pockets, and that was it. No pack, no, nothing else. I have this iconic photo from the cover of Ultra Running Magazine that I'm going to share on the screen for everybody who watches on YouTube here. This is Kyle Skaggs, the one and only in 2008 when yeah. he ran a world shattering 23 hours, 23 minutes on yeah. the course. And I want to say he was like 21 or 22 at the time. He's, yep. he's in the early 20s. So he's, he's really like just took everyone aback. And, uh, you know, there was actually a little bit of uh, controversy that year because good friend, Jorge Pacheco won. He had won a number of races that year, but Kyle had broken the hard rock record, hard rock 24 hour barrier, which had never been done. And right. people are like, I don't know, Kyle, Kyle did something pretty crazy. So yeah. You mean Jorge won ultra runner oh, of the year. Yeah. Jorge yeah, yeah. Uro and Kyle was, uh, was probably performance of the year. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but that really did usher in this new generation, right? When Kyle Skaggs broke the course record by, I think almost like three hours. I don't think anybody had run under 26 hours at that point. And all of a sudden this young 22 year old hydrologist <laughs> runs 23, 23. And it, it was sort of like that Roger Bannister moment of like, what can people do on this course? And then like all great sporting stories, Kyle just disappears off the face of the trail running map mm. only to reappear last year to pace Dakota Jones from Cunningham to the finish and sort of bringing that amazing story full circle after 15 years, a couple other, other great memories here. Maybe we just tick through them quickly. I recall also in 2010 when Jared Campbell won the race, but Diana Finkel hard rock icon and legend led the race in, Till like mile 90 when mm. Jared finally caught her. And then another great memory in 2014, watching Killian come to hard rock for the first time and smash Kyle Skaggs record when the rest of the field was absolutely obliterated. Recalling back to the year. That's the year that Adam Campbell got struck by lightning. That's right. On handies. Siyoshi Kaburagi got hit in the face by a rock. Yeah, coming up a uh, giant welt on his cheek Creek. <laughs> Julian Choyer finished second, like two or three hours after Killian totally hunched over Sebastian Chengyo drops out of grouse, like his absolutely catatonic. Winner, yeah. Joe Grant comes riding on a bicycle down from engineer pass yeah. because he's, he's like, <laughs> he couldn't walk. Yeah. He had to drop on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. And then Dakota like rolled his ankle coming up handies, came walking back into grouse. That was the year, the first year that Timothy Olson got into the race and suffered to like a 31 hour finish. So I believe he was on the mattress. Yeah. On the, side of Bear that Creek that been, year. the mattress year. 
Well, that was like one of the first truly competitive races mm-hmm. at Hard Rock. And it was like, you know, the peak of Killian's powers, which of course like lasted 15 years. And, and uh, yeah, just like one of those absolutely dominant victories and amazing memories for me, just like being so inspired yeah. cruising around the course. Yeah, I mean that that year, uh, it was just like a, a million things went wrong for people other than Killian, and I think it was kind of one of those things for Americans watching. You know, Killian he'd he'd come and eventually won Western States in 2011, I believe. Um, but we still weren't you know completely convinced about what Killian was, and 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 when we saw like you know with our own eyes here at Hard Rock, it was like, no, he truly does walk on water. He truly just you know not, not, uh, affected by the altitude, not affected by the terrain. Um, just, you know, kind of waltzed through it. Um, and there's another killing story in there too, with the, uh, when he uh, popped his arm out, what year was that? That was 2016. I think I yeah. faced Mike foot that year. Oh man. And that, that was like one of the toughest things because Mike foot was in probably one of the peaks of his career at that point really had a shot catching him. You know, he, here is that, Killian's arm has been popped out and he's running with his arm in a sling. So you can imagine there's probably a picture you can uh, find, but he's, his arms is uh, kind of tucked into his, his uh, hydration pack. He's got one hand with one pole. So Killian's literally like fighting, you know, running the race with one hand tied behind his back metaphorically, but also literally. And foot is throwing charges at him, right? You were there with him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We, I paced foot over, Virginia's pass from Uray to Telluride that year. Funny story from me too. Sorry, this is sort of navel gazy, but both uh, Tim Olson and I were pacing and crewing for Mike Foot that year. And it just so happened to coincide with like a three-day widespread panic concert in Telluride, like a widespread panic festival in Telluride. So we, I crewed for him the first half of the race with Tim. Tim drove my car around to Telluride I paced him over Virginia's pass. Tim picked him up from there and took him to the finish. And then I hung out until he arrived for a couple of days and went to a widespread panic festival is the ultimate masochism and hedonism, uh, pairing great memories for me. So how'd your kidneys survive that? Yeah. Thank goodness. Anyway, I guess, uh, what we're getting around to is that this is a special race. This is an amazing event and I'm sure most of our audience will not need that to be made explicit, but for you and I having been here many of the last 13 years or so together, there's a lot of great memories and more to be made in the future. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the course in particular, before we got started here, you were sort of making the comment that in all the conversation about hard rock, sometimes it get lost. It gets lost just how hard this course is. So maybe with that, little bit of a prompt you can launch into what makes the hard rock course so difficult. You know, I, I was kind of thinking about this from a, a permitting standpoint. Most of the time you have a, a race, uh, uh, you know, put on in, in the mountains, you can't go to the high peaks. You can't go to the really rocky, you know, sketchy trails. You can't go near cliffs. You can't go, um, on drainages, you know, that are really overrun with snow melt and, and snow fields and stuff. It's just not something that's generally allowed. And so our, most of the American courses are protected by wilderness. So you don't get those really like, you know, out there experiences. And one of the lucky things of the Harvard course, lucky or unlucky, that depends on, on when you're in the race. 
you know, right mile, like 90 climbing up uh, Cunningham Gulch. Uh, BLM owns most of the land uh, and they oversee most of it. I think there's a small amount. That's the national, the forest service, but it's mostly BLM. BLM does not care if you have a motorcycle, ATV, whatever on a lot of the terrain um, in Pole Creek, you, you can actually run it. It's a single track, but there are, they allow motorcycles through there. Um, so it's a very much of a wild west course where the trails, they do, they do try to do some trail maintenance, but most of the trails are covered in snow for, uh, eight, nine months of the year. And so you're dealing with this, this really like rocky terrain where either there's a lot of talus or, you know, rocks that move on you, or there's just a lot of embedded rocks and very technical terrain. Um, there's also a lot of wildflowers and grasses. And so if you're going across a field, it looks pretty in, in a picture, right? But when you're actually going through that field, there's all these gopher holes and, and clumps of dirt missing. Um, and, and so you're dealing with this very technical terrain. There's maybe 10 miles of the course that isn't explicitly technical. The rest of it, you go to, you know, your, your, whatever your local race in California, you know, other parts of the country are, this is the most technical parts of your local race. And it's just crammed together for 90 miles loose rocks, you know, like you're going up handies, you know, is, is one thing we'll get into the course description, but yeah. you're up handies and the rocks are sliding on you. Yeah. You know, they're not holding in place and you're up at like 13, 14,000 feet and the course is just throwing curveballs at you left and right. And so, you know, when, when we, we look at the times that people run and we're, you know, you know, killing around 21 hours last year, that's really crazy because it's a really, really technical course. It's a very, very te- and the Europeans, they've all said this. Uh, I think you've talked to them when they've come over. This is a lot more technical than UTMB. Oh, yeah. It's the same vert, but it's a lot more technical. Yep. And so, you know, the combination of, of that technicality and then the altitude, it's it's really a suffer fest. And there's there's no, uh, there's nothing mysterious about why the average finishing time is over 44 hours, I believe, yeah. is the average median time. So it, it's not something that you should, um, I think listeners at home should take as, Oh, I really want to do it. I think I really want to do it. It's like, you need to be really into technical running. You need to be into altitude running. You need to be into like, you know, being in very remote places for a while because it does, it's not just a hundred miles. It's, yeah. it's a hundred miles and all, all these other things. And so it runs more like a 150 mile race, a 200 mile race even. For people, yeah. So, yeah, we got a lot of questions from the audience. I sent out a little prompt yesterday and we're going to close the show by having our fantastic producer, Mr. Ryan Thrower, is sitting here with us to give us a few of those uh, questions from the audience. But one of the common themes was like, compare it to UTMB, right? Because on paper, it's about a hundred miles. It's about 30,000 feet of climbing for both the events, but Hard Rock's average elevation is about 11,000 feet. UTMB's is probably like 5,500 the TMB course is a trail that thousands of hikers walk on every single year yep. and have been for probably a few centuries. The hard rock course is much less traveled under snow, probably a much larger percentage of the year and is just a harsher, more severe environment. But, you know, also I think, the thing that also stands out in my mind is obviously the participation numbers, right? Like in hard rock, you're almost certainly not within eyesight of people for most of the event. Whereas UTMB, that's very much not the case. Also, I do have the course pulled up here again, for those who watch us on YouTube, I've got the elevation profile and I think um, maybe it'd be fun to just kind of like walk through the course and maybe we can both go back and forth and 
say a few words about what makes certain sections difficult. So maybe let's start with, you know, the beginning through Sherman, right? Like I think for me, as I look at this section of the course, the first thing that jumps out is just like, okay, this is where the most runnable terrain is, but where the longest sustained high altitude terrain is. Mm -hmm. So maybe enlighten the people what I'm talking about there. Yeah. So I think the first thing I always remember is that the, the climbs around Silverton are really tough and really brutal. Um, the, the, in general, the east side of the course, which is, um, you know, on the way to Sherman is a little bit more runnable, um, especially through, uh, Maggie and, uh, Pole Creek. But, um, you know, right off the bat, the climb up to little giant up to 13,000 feet is, I mean, it really, you do start with a 3,800 foot climb straight out the gates. Yeah. And and it's a, and this is the, it kind of is like a good, like, hello, welcome to hard rock. Here's a swift kick in the butt. Um, you have a nice little, uh, jaunt through the woods. Um, you know, very gentle climbing for about like two, three miles. The gloves come off. You get onto a, uh, a fire road or a dirt road heading up to the uh, single track. That's pretty steep. Um, you know, you might hike it, you might run it, but, um, you, you hike it. Yeah. If, if you, <laughs> if you run it, you might regret that in a, uh, in a, in short time. Um, and then you're on this very rocky towels field up to little giant pass. Um, which is just like, it just gets, it, it just keeps on like tightening its vice around you. I think of it kind of like a snake where it's, it's trying to, you know, um, suck the air out of you. And, uh, man, as you go up that climb, you just feel it. It just gets worse and it gets steeper and steeper and more technical and more loose. And so, um, it's a very like good morning. <laughs> yeah. And then you drop steeply into Cunningham, which is mile nine, the first opportunity to see crew. And then I think, again, we should make it explicit that we're talking about the counterclockwise direction here. And the race, of course, alternates directions every year. I've only run it counterclockwise. You've done both directions, but we'll use this as a guide for people who do counterclockwise and then they can reverse engineer everything we say going the opposite direction. And then getting into Cunningham, leaving there, you know that you're not going to see your crew again until Animus Fork. So you have, you know, for the front runners, I think that's like a seven or eight hour stretch without Mm -hmm. crew. You do have aid stations along the way, including Sherman, where at least I've left a drop bag in 2021, where I plan to leave a drop bag again this year. But as you leave Cunningham, you go into that Maggie Pole Creek area that I was referencing before, where it's like a 19 mile stretch where you're above 11, 11, five. Yep. I think the entire 11, five, yeah. 11, 11, five for almost 20 miles. Yeah. <laughs> and so even though the terrain doesn't have as much concentrated ups and downs vertical, you're just at altitude and at 11, five, even if the terrain doesn't have a lot of vertical, it's difficult to move quickly. You, you definitely kick yourself if you can't run the nice sections. And that's again, where that, that first climb and the second climb, if you've, if you've uh, gone a little bit too hard, you're going to be a little bit <laughs> regretting that you can't run the runnable sections in pole Creek. Yeah. Um, and then down to Sherman. Yeah. That's a, that's a really fun section down to Sherman. It's in the trees. It's next to a roaring river. Um, sweet, sweet trail there. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So then of course, exiting Sherman, you have the looming awareness that Handy's Peak is just, just ahead of you. Yeah, you're you're 30 miles into the race. You're, you're doing some math about your, you know, how you're well you're doing, but you know, really the rest of the race after that is is these very long, long climbs. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, is this direction? It's just like the climbs just go forever. 
And so we'll, we'll maybe come back around to that in a little bit, but you know, leaving Sherman, of course you go up handy as it's a long slog up over the high point. We should emphasize 14,000 feet, the only 14 or on the course before dropping down to what used to be the Grouse Gulch aid station that they've moved a little bit further up the road. Now that they call it animus forks. Just yeah. for the heck of it. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll appreciate it. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to animus forks and again, that's the second place that you're allowed to see crew in this counterclockwise direction, exiting an animus forks. And I have to say there's, there's one thing that just always during the race, I like, I'm so frustrated by it. So you get off of the top of handies, you drop down and um, there is a, a trailhead that um, most people use if they have four by four to get up handies. Um, but we don't, that's not where the aid station is. You have to climb up another 800 feet. Yeah. So after you've been hypoxic and you're just like, I just want to see my crew, you've got to climb like six, eh, it's like six, five, 500, 600 feet back up. And then you get to drop down to 11, uh, 10, 10, eight to see your, uh, your crew. And it's, it's, it's like those little like details on the course are like very so painful true. on race day. Oh my God. Course, you, I mean, yeah. Yes. I like, I lose my lunch on handies and then it's like, all right, I can, I can run downhill on fumes, but then that, like that five or 600 foot climb up back to 13,000 13, yeah. 13, feet. It's just like, dang it. This is not convenient <laughs> at all. <laughs> So maybe like accelerating our description here, you then have after Animus Fork sort of a long dirt road climb up to Engineer Pass. It's a road that's one of the most popular four by four off-roading routes in Colorado, I'm sure. So you're often getting passed by Jeeps and rock crawlers and things like that all the way up to Engineer. And then you've got that long, beautiful like 10 mile descent into URA, one of the highlights of the course for sure, that Bear Creek trail coming into URA. People I'm sure have seen photographs of this where you're sort of like running along a shelf, often on like sort of like crumbling shale. You <laughs> do have to be cognizant that you don't make a wrong step because it could have consequences. There. If you have a fear of heights, you're going to be running very close to the inside wall yeah. and not so much the outside. You might be going a little bit slower, but yeah. Um, so then getting into your a, the, the thing that, you know, sticks out to me from my memory in 2021 is just like, man, you got four climbs to go and all four of them are just absolute soul crushers beginning with the ascent up Camp Bird road to Virginia. Three hours. I think that takes for the front runners. And that is the, the longest climb of the race going from uh, just under eight. So at 7,800 up to 13,000, which is just vertical mile. 5,300 feet of vert <laughs> and it doesn't really stop. There's some runnable sections on the camp bird road. If you're feeling good. Um, and your a is like a great place where you can actually get some food down, get some oxygen in your body. And like, you just feel so much better to be in your a. Um, if you have PTSD from the first half of the race, <laughs> you might be not willing to leave your a, but if you, you know, you can get some food down and feel better. Um, your a is a great like place to recharge and get going because you're now 55 miles in. Yeah. And, um, you know, you've got a lot of the, you got handies behind you. You've got, um, you know, a lot of like the more technical stuff, but. But then um, you're going into the night. Into the night. And yeah. into these just monster climbs after Virginia's is of course Oscar's pass. I think this is the part of the race that intimidates me the most going into this year. Cause I know there's a ton of snow up there. I have 
less than happy memories, both pacing and racing over that pass. And then followed by Grant Swamp, which was absolutely the low point for me in 2021. The infamous super loose and, you know, off, off trail type, just climbing a wall effectively up to Grand Swamp Pass. I, I paced Katie through there in uh, 2017 when she ran, um, actually did the race. And she was just like, you know, fighting so hard to get up to the, you know, the, all the loose um, uh, rock and everything. And she, uh, when we finally started to, you know, get close and start cresting it, she was just crying for like a good, like five, 10 minutes as she was making the last push. <laughs> And it's so close. It's like vertically not that far, but like if you've ever yep. been to a sand dune and you, and you take one step and you lose it, you know, three quarters of the step, you take another step and, you, and that's, that's what it feels like up there at that point. Um, yep. You might get lucky this year with the snow. The snow might move less at that early hour of the morning. So that might be a good thing for you. I was talking to Topher Gaylord who just went up it the other day and I think it has melted out to the point where we will actually be on earth rather than yes, snow. The going up. will be, yeah. Yeah. But the climb up will be on snow for sure. No, 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 it's not. Okay. I will show yeah. a picture some last night, man. Okay. Well, yeah. On the climb up on the North side. Okay. It's definitely snow. Not for the entire part of it. Not the entire part, well, but there's should, a lot I of field, field snow but on the South side. Yeah. Totally snow free. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm, I, again, just have my Strava up here. So for our viewing audience, they can take a look at all the, passes and mountains and things that we're referencing here. But I also have mile 86 highlighted as my slowest mile of the entire hard rock, 128, 33. And that was going over grand swamp pass. And, it was mile time there. Yeah. 2833. Oh, 28 minute mile, 28 minute, 33 second mile at mile 86. That was going over the top and of grand I, swamp pass. I can't pass. emphasize that enough. That's not a bad time at all. <laughs> That's actually a very like uh, aerobic pace. Yeah. There. Yeah. Um, so just wrapping up here after Grand Swamp Pass, you drop down to KT, which is, um, I guess sort of like the last major aid station. And then you go over Putnam Ridge, the final climb. Yeah. We, we kind of refer to it as a mini pass and maxi pass. Yeah, dude, this is a funny story from 2011, Joe Grant and I, again, I was pacing him. He was like fully hallucinating, like had imploded hours before and we get up to, I think it's called porcupine yeah. pass there. And we yep. thought we were at the top of the final climb and we embraced, we hugged. We were so glad <laughs> I had been out there already for like 11 hours with him. And we were like, Oh, we are, the climbing is done. And then you sort of like go around this high cirque. Yeah. And then you realize you have another like six, 700 foot climb up to Putnam Ridge. <laughs> and we were just heartbroken. Again, these are happy, funny memories now, 12 years later, but in the moment they were devastating. That, that course just does not let go of you until the end. And you're right. like, you know, you, you feel like you're on fumes and you're so close and you can see, you know, Silverton off in the distance, but it just does not let go. Yeah. And then even like the final descent off Putnam Ridge is like, Rocky technical talus fields. Then mm -hmm. you got to cross mid Earl Creek and then you still have a couple more miles before you get to kiss the rock. <laughs> That's an important distinction is a lot of the course has what's known as tailings. And so the miners, when they were, you know, pulling the rock, the precious ore out, whatever wasn't precious, they just toss it over and there's be big tailings or just uh, piles of choss. And so the trails will just go right through those piles of choss and you're like, 
you know, your knees are, you know, super sore, your hips, your, your quads are all shot and everything. And it's like, nope, keep your balance. <laughs> yeah. If you don't, you're going to get a face full of rocks. So. Yeah. I recall just like had my poles out for almost the entirety of the hundred mile race. Maybe we can talk more about that later, but especially that last ascent, just kept the poles out, would come to one of these little talus fields, even though it was a downhill trajectory, I just walk across it. I was just like, <laughs> uh, just relentless. This course is yeah. relentless. Hopefully we've conveyed that here with our long form course description. This episode is brought to you by HVMN and their Ketone IQ Supplement. Ketones are important macronutrients with clinically studied benefits for increasing energy and focus throughout the day. Ketone IQ is brain fuel, naturally increasing your blood ketone levels in just a simple, handy two ounce shot. The perfect thing to throw down the hatch whenever you need an extra boost, either in your training or in your daily life. My wife Harmony and I have become really enamored with this product, honestly, between running our business business, my increasing training load and being parents, we've been operating at full capacity for a long time. I had specifically become overly reliant on caffeine throughout the day until I started taking this product. And I have to say it has really helped me to feel more focused and energized. And especially in my training, I have been having a ketone IQ shot in the mornings before all my long runs. And it really does help me feel steady energy for hours on end, even when the baby has kept me up at night. This stuff has evidently become really popular in cycling and is just now being discovered by runners. So go check it out. You won't be disappointed. Visit hvmn.com. Look up the ketone IQ. Use code freetrail20 for 20% off. hvmn.com. Use code freetrail20. So maybe with all that preamble, Don, we could talk a little bit about what is going to make this year different. And unique. I was talking to Brian Powell the other day and he made the analog to the 1995 Western States, the year of fire and ice. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Oh, no, I'm, I'm a hundred percent in agreement there. Um, just pulling up the, you know, the weather forecast, uh, not a cloud in the sky, high of 80 on Friday in Silverton. And that's here at 9,000 feet. Um, there's a very interesting thing that happens, um, for those that, you know, don't spend a lot of time in the Alpine is when there are no clouds, you get increased solar radiation. So, you know, there's ways that we, you know, we get hot as human beings. We get hot when, you know, we're in a city and the, and the, the concrete gets hot, right? That, that, can, that can overheat us. That's like a convection. That's the air around you. Solar radiation is actually less in a city because a city has smog and has particulate matter and all that. So you're kind of protected from solar radiation. Solar radiation is kind of like the feeling of like when you step out of your car, you feel like you instantly get a sunburn that's solar radiation. So it's like, it's kind of like, you know, nuking you almost in a way. Um, and so because there will be no sun, no clouds, <laughs> no, no, no clouds. I'm sorry. No clouds. Um, the runners as they're, you know, going above tree line, which is around 10 to 11,000 feet tree, tree line, you're just going to get being nuked. And so, you know, arm sleeves are going to be important. Uh, keeping cool will be important. Um, you'll go through snow fields, which will be cool, but, um, you might want to like lay down the snow fields and like ice the legs, you know, get some circulation going um, because it will be very hot, especially when you're racing, and you're pushing yourself up these climbs. Dude, forecast in your A is 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. I doubt there's ever been a hard rock where it's been 85 degrees right. in your A. That's going to feel crazy hot. And then going back to the fire and ice theme, there's still a shit ton of snow on the course. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be a unique hard rock. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if we, you want to say any more about that, but 
one thing we haven't talked about is like the difference between clockwise and counterclockwise. Again, you've done it both directions. I've mm -hmm. only done it counterclockwise, which is the direction that I'll do it again this year. But there's, you know, some, I don't know, there's always some conversation, if not a little bit of controversy, disagreement about which direction is faster. And the course records would indicate that they're about the same, but I wonder what your reaction yeah. is. Um, you know, it's, uh, I have a funny analogy. Uh, my kids and I, we, we, we throw rocks, you know, in, in ponds of water, right? We're on hikes around here. And every time you pick up a rock, it's a different rock. And so you try to skip it, you try to throw it further, whatever. They're all different. And so, um, you know, kind of the moral story here is that each, each direction is different, but each year is completely different. Totally. And so when there's been records set, um, yeah, sometimes there's been a little bit of snow. Sometimes there's been no snow. Um, it's all about the runners in the race, how they've come in, how they felt, um, you know, what type of fitness they've been in. Um, you know, when there's no snow at all, this, the course can be very dry, um, and a little bit more technical in some ways. Um, when there's a lot of snow, it can be, you know, it can go both ways on the downhills. Um, this, you can glissade in the snow. It's a lot less, it's a lot easier on your legs. Yeah. Um, when you're running really technical, rocky downhills and there's no snow, it can beat you up more. Yeah. So, um, you know, every, every course has its pros and cons. I think this year I would not expect another, a new course record, um, just with the heat. Um, it's not the fact that Killian and Francois are in here. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that, that might have something to do with it. it. It reminds me of something I forgot to say earlier with the hard rock and UTMB comparison. Obviously last year, Killian broke the course record at both races and he ran almost two hours slower here at hard rock. So I think that's an indication again, even though the courses are about a hundred miles, about 30,000 feet of climbing, both hard rock is two hours slower, even for the best in the world. And I think for Courtney, you know, she's got the course record at both races. Also, mm -hmm. I'd have to double check here, but just off memory, I think the Delta there is like four hours. I think yeah. she ran like 22 and a half at UTMB and 26 and a half here at hard rock. And if you, you know, get in the details too, I think UTMB is like 104 miles. Yeah. So there's, that's a, right. That's an extra Longer 45 course. minutes, um, mm -hmm. give or take on average uh, pace. So it's more than two hours. It's like, you know, two hours, yeah. and 45 minutes, but, but yeah, I, but to answer that question on the kind of clockwise, uh, clockwise, um, if you're going this direction, in the counterclockwise, right? This is counterclockwise here. Yeah. Um, you have a little bit faster running earlier on and more suffering <laughs> later on, uh, and then vice versa. And so it really comes down to how you approach it mentally as a runner. You know, do you, um, are you a runner who's more of a second half runner, like the Nick Curries of the world who are very good at, you know, holding back in the first half of the race? Um, if you are, then, you know, you can make up time uh, later on those tough climbs because you've saved your legs in Pole Creek. Um, you know, alternatively, if you're more of an even keel runner, you'll just, you know, be further ahead at your A and then you'll just suffer more through the second half. Um, and personally, like I don't find either direction to be more difficult than the other because all the climbs, um, which, whichever side you're coming from, they're all just brutal. And, uh, you pretty much just hike the climbs around yeah. the downs, even for the people at the front of the race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have two good Jeff Browning anecdotes here that I think our audience will find entertaining. The first of which is it something to the effect of you just don't make moves on the hard rock course. You just don't make moves. You just go out there and you run and you push, but you never like, like I need to break the elastic on this person right yeah. now. <laughs> well, it, it's a funny thing. Cause uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels 
Um, I think on you know, this race being a uh, really, and it, I, I, I have to go back to what, you know, the interview with you and Dale was um, a few days ago was uh, it's not a, a race. It's, it's, it's a run. It's <laughs> you versus the mountains. And um, you know, every time that you look at a, a particular section and you think like, okay, what if I do run it like this? Or what if I run it like that? Like you don't really have any say in the matter because as you get higher and higher on the climb, you just get more and more, you know, suffocation and, and, and asphyxiation. And it's like, you're doing your, your very best. And so, um, you know, when there have been years where people have leapfrogged each other or passed each other, you know, they're, they're honestly doing their best. There is no other gear, um, in their wheelhouse to say, okay, at this point I'm going to drop the hammer. Um, Keelan might be an exception <laughs> with Francois, you know, um, right. last year. That video of them going through Cunningham was yeah. absolutely amazing. Killian and Francois, the two goats yeah. doing battle at mile 91 of hard rock where Killian did make his move. Yeah. But of course, most of us aren't Killian. <laughs> Just for our viewing audience here, I pulled out the uh, course profile going in the clockwise direction just for contrast because I had the counterclockwise direction pulled up for a while. So you can just sort of see that mirror image there. The second good Jeff Browning anecdote, I was climbing handies with him the other day and in true Jeff Browning fashion, he's like, you think of the race as a beautiful piece of sourdough toast. And you take a big knife full of almond butter, right? Or peanut butter. And you take that big, beautiful piece of sourdough toast. And what you want to do is spread oh, that man. almond butter evenly over the whole toast. And what happens if you lay it on too thick early? You get dry toast by the end. You said, you don't want dry toast. So guess what your boy's mantra is on Friday? No dry toast, no dry toast. Shout out to Bronco Billy. Fantastic. And I have to say, I have that same exact, like when you started talking about the, the bread, I was like, I already know this. Cause I've like <laughs> felt the same way. I feel the exact same way about it. <laughs> it's such a long course. If you don't save a little bit for those last few climbs, you know, um, when I paced Katie, um, you know, she was through Telluride closer, like 36 hour pace, um, she ended up being at just under 40 at 39, 50 something, but it was that, that same, uh, you know, idea of that. She just let her stomach get away to, away from her a little bit too much past Telluride, start throwing up on Oscars. And then, man, those last few miles just drug out and she was glad to be done before 10 o'clock, but, um, still, you know, she could, she could have left, she left some time on the table because she couldn't quite Quite spread out. Yeah. No knock against Katie. She is a very oh, smart, capable uh, woman. Um, it's just, you know, everyone's playing. It's a little bit of roulette It's hard and to gambling. spread it evenly. You've got to decide. Even where you, when it's just toast, right? Where it's are hard you placing your chips, spread. you know? Yeah, I know. Even when it's toast. <laughs> but, but I mean, I really think, uh, you know, there's there's a little bit of a, a parallel to gambling in this because when you when you feel good in the race, you feel good. You can't like change those feelings in your head yeah. and you, and you see someone ahead of you or, or you look at your watch and you do, do a little bit of math you're like, Hey, maybe I should lean into the polls a little bit more. Maybe I should, you know, maybe I'll, I'll eat just one gel in like another 10 minutes or whatever. Right. And then you, you start you know, gambling with that, like nutrition and that effort level. And that's where like races can blow up really poorly. Yeah. Um, it's that, such a long race. You, there's always time to get, get back, but that's what I was going to say too. Just, from my memories of being here as a pacer and as a spectator 
when things go sideways here, they go sideways in a big way. And uh, it's hard to contain the damage, right? Because the course is just so big and so hard and so remote. And oftentimes you have hours and hours between crew resupplies and even aid stations at times that if it spirals, it spirals bad. So even spread, no dry toast. Dom, before we get to some of our audience questions, do you want to do a preview of this year's race a little bit? Just talk about some of the, uh, the yeah, characters or should we leave that favorite I would pick right now? It's kind of hard. It's not, it's, it's, I'm not, and I have to say, Katie and I have been talking about this. Like this is the worst place to be because most of your career, right? You've been chasing some of the, the goats of all time, right? You've been see how close can I get to Killian? How close can I get to Francois? What can I do? You know? And, and I'm sorry to say this, Dylan, but you are the favorite. <laughs> no, I'm I know it's a, it's a horrible juju. You hate hearing it. You don't want to know, but your boy, uh, Dylan Bowman. I appreciate that, but uh, I beg to differ. I, I mean, you have a solid resume. I'm sorry, you can't outrun your resume right now. Oh, well, thanks, but <laughs> it's also I haven't really trained in two years until you know these and, and last two weeks. So that's the one thing I do want to give you is that you know the dad strength is a real thing. So is it? I'm it's not a convinced. Real thing. I'm not convinced. So I mean, I've I've at least you know. Um, I have this problem where my kids are ridiculously cute and I really, you know, can't get enough time with them. And I've trained a lot less in the past few years, um, for sure. But what I've noticed is that the cross train of carrying them around, you know, walking around with them, um, being on your feet, uh, being up at all hours of the night, um, it kind of comes into play. And so all those workouts that you've done before having kids, they still count. Um, yeah, they don't, you don't feel as confident because you haven't done those workouts with kids but you've done those kids, those workouts before. And so you still, they still count. And you have this extra gear of this, like this primal urge of like, I want to run hard for my kid. I want to get back to the finish and hug my kid and walk across line with them. And I feel that, you know, mileage is relative in training when you also have the stress of, you know, keeping a kid alive, running a business, doing all that stuff, being a breadwinner. Well, I mean, I appreciate it, but um, yeah, I certainly don't, don't view it the same way, but you know, I, I think without going into every single character in the field, maybe a funner question for you would be is what do you think about Courtney? I mean, yeah. I think, I think Courtney <laughs> finishes on the overall podium. If yeah. not wins outright. Oh yeah. I think it's going to be actually, uh, depending on how the, how the temperatures you know play out, if it's a really hot day, you know, heat can affect anyone more or less than another. Um, but there is a chance that we see Courtney going after you. Um, if you're having some rough moments, um, you know, she ran her butt off at, at uh, Western States. Uh, that I'd give that as kind of a, a, a vote in the column of, I don't think she's going to catch you, uh, or maybe some of the other top guys, but at the same time, you know, this is the Ironman analogy, right? You do a great job on the, uh, on the bike and all of a sudden you've got all this endorphins and adrenaline going and you just kill the run. And I think that in a way, Dude, Western she's, States is the bike. She's on such a heater right now. There's, I don't, I have, I'm through with doubting anything that involves Courtney DeWalt there and what she's <laughs> capable of. I, and I think, um, I mean, I think she could run sub 24, which I, would be a two hour, 45 minute improvement over last year's time for her. I, I think that she's she's really gotten to the point of like completely tapping into her you know raw talent 
And we might be lucky to see it if it works out. I mean, the temperatures are not going to be nice to her, yeah. um, but we'll see how she uses the snow and how she, you know, takes her Western States heat training and stuff, figures it out. But I think, yeah, I agree. She could definitely break 24. And if she does break 24, she might, you know, if, if the other men in the field don't do their jobs of, of you know, taking care of themselves and running a smart yeah. race, she might be the overall winner. Yeah. No pressure. I already called you the favorite. Yeah, dude. But, yeah. but, you know, that would still, what an honor to be beat by Courtney DeWalter. That would be. I've already been beat by her many times. So. <laughs> so maybe just to give a shout out to some of the other characters in the field. I was running with Yassine Daboon the other day and he made a comment. He was like, dude, it's like Western States, 2011, 2012. Cause it's like Yassine, Jesse Haynes, Jeff Browning, Paul Terranova, myself. Yeah. It's like some of this old guard guys who've been around for a long time. I would view the two French guys as being the two favorites in the men's race, Aurelien Dunant Palaz and Benyat Marmasol, both who've been high up at UTMB. Benyat won the Grand Raid last year. I bumped into Aurelien up on Oscars Pass the other day, and you know, he's Definitely a freaking stud of an athlete, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, not, not, not to take anything away from them. I think they're very capable. It's just always this question of how do they translate onto the hard rock course? Right. Hard rock's very technical. Aurelian will do great with that. Um, I mean, it's more of a, it's the most European style 100 miler in oh, the US. 100%. Yeah. But then like Avery Collins, dude, dude lives here. Super acclimatized, great athlete. Arlen Glick, you know, Mark Hammond too. Like it's yeah. a pretty, it's a pretty solid men's field. And, and you know, I think we've had a, a number of years of just the, the European goats coming over here and just dominating the scene. Yeah. But this is kind of a chance for more runners that are actually very capable and very talented. Now, Paul Turnover lives in Leadville now, right. um, or just outside of it. He's a, he's a great out high altitude runner. He's, yeah. he's done uh, top 10 at Western States. You know, he's, he's a very talented runner. He doesn't get a lot of limelight because usually there's you know a lot of other big names in front of him, but he could do very well here. He could yeah. be in a 25, 26 hour range if everything goes well. Yeah. So just to maybe round things out here before we bring Ryan in to tee up some questions for us on the women's side, of course, it's not just Courtney DeWalter, but Annie Hughes from Leadville is here and mm -hmm. she specializes in these long, super tough races. And then a couple of Europeans, Annalise Roussette and Claire uh, Banworth are, are both here. And then, uh, a great Japanese athlete, Kamino Maza, I'm sorry, Miyazaki mm -hmm. is here too. So yeah, it's, it's actually like a pretty competitive hard rock. I think one of the things that makes hard rock interesting too, is like, it's never as deep as Western States or UTMB. Right. And it does have that sort of like more grassroots mm -hmm. feel, but there's always like a handful of people who are approaching it competitively in the men's race and the women's race. Most people to be fair are here just to kiss the rock, but there is a little bit of a competitive edge to it. And, and I think that's, it's almost like nice, right? That it's not that like super high octane, like high performance, you know, shred or die it, type hundred mile it's field. A, it's actually a doable live cast, right? <laughs> because you know, when you're at uh, UTMB and you're trying to check your notes about a hundred of the world's greatest, you know, trail runners that are uh, all of a shot at, you know, doing something amazing. Um, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, mind boggling, but here, you know, there's, there's only so many people that are going to be doing crazy things and um, you can kind of focus on them and know who who's coming after you. Yeah. 
This episode is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition and the new salted margarita flavor of Gnarly Hydrate made with extra sodium, 500 milligrams per serving to be exact. As we head into the summer months, hotter weather means more loss of fluid, means greater need to supplement electrolytes. You guys know I am an electrolyte evangelist. Sodium, magnesium, chloride, and potassium are critical for proper hydration level, nerve function, muscle function, and body pH, all important stuff for performing at our best out on the trails. Guys, this product might be my favorite gnarly product of all time. You must give it a try. Delicious margarita flavor, some savory saltiness to it, and all the electrolytes and B vitamins you need, especially for us salty sweaters. As they say, it tastes like the real thing, but it won't make you dance on the tables and it won't make you wake up with a headache. Gnarly Hydrate Salted Margarita. Find it at gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. So that was our little preview of this year's race. And Hopefully people got some value out of our bantering about our personal experiences on the course and the deep detail about the course itself and some of the history. With all that being said, welcome to our man, Mr. Ryan Thrower. Thanks. My second time on the show. <laughs> We're going to do a long form episode with Ryan here soon. God damn it. We need to get around to it. But as I said earlier, um, I put out a prompt on Instagram yesterday, just sort of like soliciting some questions because I was hoping that this would be a fun, like evergreen podcast that people could revisit whenever they get into hard rock or they could re-listen to every year before sure. hard rock. Yeah. And so we got a bunch of really good questions and I pulled, I don't know, five or six of them out. So maybe we can tick through those quickly. Go ahead, Ryan. Cody VR with the first question. It's a two-parter. Is the route finding difficult for a first timer and does the snow make staying on course harder? So maybe I'll, I'll start with this one. Hard Rock is known for marking the course sparsely. And one thing we haven't said is that Hard Rock takes pride in being a self-proclaimed postgraduate 100-mile event. And part of what that means is that you need to be self-sufficient. They're not telling you what type of gear you need to carry they're assuming you can be comfortable in the mountains. That's why the qualifying system to even get into the lottery is difficult. So the course marking can be tricky, but with the advent of GPX files, Gaia, great watches, you know, I'll have the route uploaded into my Garmin the whole way. Ideally, you can stay on the course the whole time, but it is more self-sufficient, right? At UTMB, you can almost see the next... Mm -hmm course marking confidence ribbon, confidence ribbon, like yeah. whatever, every quarter mile here, that's not the case. And the snow is only going to make it harder. Yeah. And you know, what'll happen to you is you'll be, uh, there's a, there's a handful of sections like in pole Creek, um, some other places where, um, you're going cross country. So you just need to kind of shoot for a Ridge or shoot for a point. And, um, you know, people go take different routes and so that the route isn't really dialed in. So, Totally. Yeah. There's a, that's a good thing to emphasize too, is like, there's a bunch of spots like that. Like when you drop off Maggie, right. Mm -hmm. Or when you drop off green mountain or when you drop off engineer, right. right. It's just like, okay, sometimes there's a cairn, but you're just like going through a grassy Alpine tundra and you just sort of have to yeah. e either follow a cairn, follow a course marking or follow your gut slash the GPX file in your yeah. watch. <laughs> Next question. Next question is from lots of people. 
How do you approach <laughs> the altitude adjustment and how do you factor altitude on race day? This was definitely the most common oh, question. Good. good. No, I'm glad that people are thinking about it because it is as bad as you think it is. Um, what I like to do is try to get out early if I'm in the race. Um, so I try to you know, get out a block or two or three weeks. Um, and here's a very important little uh, tidbit is that you want to be at altitude, get used to it, get kind of like calibrated, if you will. Um, but being at altitude actually sucks red blood cells out. It stimulates, you know, growing them, but it also kills them off too. I so, love how you elongated. It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> red blood cells. Red blood cells. Please elaborate. Um, and so you, what will happen is you'll actually become, um, you'll get calibrated mentally about your effort level and how hard you should push, but you'll actually lose red blood cells. So if you can, um, maybe a week before the race, maybe, maybe two, three days before the race, spend a day down in, uh, Durango or somewhere lower, get your red blood cell count back up a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, the other thing with altitude is that when you stress about it, that burns oxygen. So you can't obsess about it and be like, oh, you know, my pulse ox on my watch is saying I'm this or that, you know, you gotta let it be what it is and you've got to be patient with it. Um, there are some really painful things about the course where, you know, you start feeling bad at like, you know, 11.5 or 12,000 and you got to go up all the way to 14 and you know, it's happening. You know, you know, you're just getting weaker and you're losing power and it sucks. And you've just kind of got to do one thing I'll do is breathing exercises. So I'll do like a yoga flutter. I'll take a deep breath and just try to compress my lungs a little bit. Yep. So the vibration will kind of relax them and then I'll hope to like get the, um, alveoli in the lungs to, to absorb oxygen a little bit better. So little, little tricks and tips you can do. Ultimately, it just sucks. <laughs> and it just takes time to adjust. So if you can, and I realize that it's a luxury, but if you get into hard rock, you should do everything in your power to come out to Silverton or somewhere in the neighborhood and acclimatize for a while, realizing that that's not necessarily practical for a lot of people. But in Silverton, for those who haven't been, there's abundant free camping all over the place. So you don't necessarily need to have a luxurious Airbnb. You can come out with a tent and live on the land in a rustic way and become one with the earth and one with the mountains, which I know is something you guys do as a family every year. Oh yeah. That's what we do. And you know, Dakota last year had a great race and he did that before. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with camping. Um, you can get a pretty good setup for a couple hundred bucks and yeah, you'd be totally fine. One thing that I think is worth mentioning too about the altitude, I mentioned this in my Iron Far interview the other day, that even the runners from the front range, right, struggle when they come up to, mm -hmm. you know, Silverton's at 9,300 feet, Boulder's at 5,500. So it's almost twice as high. Even people in Boulder, when they go up to 11, 12, 13,000 feet, they are feeling it too. So for sea level runners, you know, it need not be totally intimidating. Like even for people who live at relative altitude, they need to acclimatize for hard rock. Also, I'll be here for two and a half weeks before the race this year. Last time in 2021, I did a six week camp in mammoth realizing that's totally impractical for 99% of our listeners. But really I felt like I didn't feel super dialed at altitude until like that last week that I was high. So I'm self-conscious about being here for only two and a half weeks this year, but I think altitude for those who are listening, you can sort of operate with the assumption that something is better than nothing and more 
is generally better. Some people say like either show up the day before or show up a week before. I don't know necessarily how true that is. I always feel like the first two or three days are like the hardest. And then I adjust, you know, every day gets less painful after that. So I've never bought into that arrive a day before or a week before. There is one thing that, you know, when I lived at sea level that helped me, um, and it was the Hypoxco tent. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you don't get anything for free with it. You don't just sleep in it and just feel great. The next morning, you actually feel a little groggy the next morning and kind of tired. But that can help you as well. Um, it's even better to use it on a bike trainer. On too. a bike trainer, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and so those... Is then you get that real simulation what it feels like to be hypoxic during exercise. Whereas if you sleep in an altitude tent, you don't get that same like desaturation mm -hmm. of oxygen. And I, I feel it just really helps with that, like, you know, building resistance to hypoxia. And if with that mental component that you mentioned, like, cause it's just hard. Yeah. And when you're fit and you come to altitude and you feel like shit, it's easy to be like, oh, I suck. Right. And, and you know, you have to like, I, I actually will use it on the treadmill even, yeah. um, running with the mask. Um, once you kind of like, just appreciate that, like, this is what it is. And I'm, I'm at least making like a mental investment and like, I've been suffering, I've been trying, I've been on the treadmill, you know, uh, with the mask or whatever, I've been sleeping in the tent. It gives you that next level of like, all right, I've done what I can. Right. And that's what you need to have coming into the race is that mental, like I've, I've laid it out. I've tried my best. Here we are. It's still going to be hard. It's but hard, but at least I've done something. Yeah. So next question. Next question is from my girl, Corinne Chavoy. Shout out to Corinne. Is training climbing or downhill legs more important if you had to choose one? So the reason I pulled this one is I thought this would lead to a fun kind of like strategy question. Mm -hmm. Because in 2021, my main strategy going into the race, especially going this counterclockwise direction, was to run all the downhills super easy because you finish with those four ridiculous fucking climbs. And mm -hmm. it's just like, okay, whatever I can do to climb well on those last four climbs is valuable. So for me, like, I don't know, the question is more about training, but you could take it either direction training or mm -hmm. race strategy. But for me, like, you know, again, you, you hike the ups, you run the downs. And if you can run the flat stuff, like the short stretches on campered road mm -hmm. and the other minimal flat running that exists on the course, like the, starting the end, yeah. between uh, Sherman and, Burrows, yeah, maybe. Uh, but for me, I, I thought it really helped. Like, just okay, I'm gonna just take it easy on the downhill so I can hike strong on all the uphills. I thought that paid off. Yeah, I think you have to have the quads ready to run down and not hike down the hills because there actually are runners, you know, in the mid pack that are just they, their quads get shot and they they have to hike a lot more of the downhill than they should. Um, as ultra runners, you know, you should always be trying to use gravity and running downhill. So you can't overlook the downhill, but I agree with you. Most of your time is spent climbing. And so um, if you can power hike well, you can do really well here. Um, Nick Curry is like a perfect example. He's run sub 30 a number of times and he's from Phoenix. Phoenix doesn't have altitude, but he's a great power hiker. He's very, just really activates his glutes. So if you could get, you know, a, a really steep um, treadmill or have a hill by your house, that's really steep practice power hiking, you know, engaging the glutes. Um, you want your butt sticking out there, man. You want like that badonka donk just firing off um, as you're um, mar marching up. And then you want to be able to always 
efficiently run downhill is what I would call it. Not bombing downhills, but efficiently running downhills. Yeah. 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 So obviously you need to be trained for both the up and the down, but I think the way that you approach the race with where you expend your energy, obviously. Yeah. Like you said, the vast majority of the time is spent climbing and at hard rock, it's probably at least two thirds of the race time wise. You're just hiking uphill. Yeah, for me, I'm more of a downhiller and it's probably like three quarters of the race is hiking uphill. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Liam Tryon asks, what's the crux of the race for both clockwise and counterclockwise loop? So I'll go first with this. And you're the one who knows the clockwise, so maybe we'll lean on your expertise there. But I think the crux going counterclockwise is your ray, which is, I think, like mile... 58. It's the low point of the race, but for at least for me, it was like, okay, you've got a couple hours until nightfall. So you're sort of going into the night from there. So you need to make sure you have your extra layer and your light, et cetera, leaving your a, but then you've got the vertical mile climb up to Virginia's pass, which I think for me took three hours, which means for the back of the pack, that probably takes six hours to go from easily. Yeah. So for me, that was like actually where I had my low point too. So that probably colors my perspective here, calling it the crux of the race. But I would say leaving your ray, the climb all the way up to Virginia. So this is probably the crux going counterclockwise. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of, uh, I, I like your ray as like kind of the midpoint, you know, um, more or less on the, the effort level. Um, what I kind of think of is, um, Handies for me, it's just always a very big mental block. <laughs> it's kind of like this, like just it's so early going mean. this way, though. Oh, it is. It definitely is early, but like, because I, I would say on clockwise loop, handies would be the the crux. Yeah, yeah. I, I think just for me mentally, and I, this kind of goes back to the altitude thing, is that once you know that you don't have to go up to fourteen again, you just feel a little bit better that you've gotten it out of the way. Um, and and I think of it kind of as like, okay, you've solved enough problems on that. Uh, climb up to 14,000 feet. You know what to do. You know how to, to sit and eat. And if you know you need to take a break or whatever, you know how to like troubleshoot and stuff because a lot of things kind of will go wrong um, going up to handies. That's just my personal thing. I'm, I'm, uh, and so I kind of see it. And then on the other direction, um, Virginia's is a really painful long climb out of Telluride. Um, I still think handies is a little bit of a crux later on um, that because getting past handies is like really pivotal. Um, just in my mind, uh, cause going up to, you know, 14,000 feet just again sucks. But, um, but I think Virginia's is like a big, big, um, I don't know, block that you, you got to get through. Cause it's just one of the, other than handies is probably in my opinion, the second toughest pass from yeah. either direction. Yeah. So, yeah, I would agree. And then, yeah, going clockwise, I would say, yeah, leave an animus forks. It's sort of like your a where for the front runners, they're going into the night, they're going up to the high point of the course. Yeah. So anyway, good question from Liam. Let's go to the next one. Wait, why did they change it from uh grouse to animus? So grouse parking. Was, yeah. Parking is right on the road. And that was pretty tough for people to, you know, observe the race and enjoy it. And so there's this pull out to animus forks. It's like about a, mile detour and it goes dude it's the west really cool history when you're there you should read the little placards they have around there because animus forks is one of those like ghost town mining communities that there used to be hundreds of people that lived up there year round it was the highest um like continuously published 
newspaper and post office, I think, in the country for a long time. And I didn't realize that until I was running on the new course now, but it is just a short detour from the old course. And that that's a, another point too about the history of the hard rock miners, right? If you go into, you know, your Gaia or your um, Cal Topo and you look up um, mining sites, the entire mountain range is just covered in them. Just like they just basically work their way valley through valley through valley. There are railroads that went all through here and everything. Like everywhere you look, they have tried to mine. And so it's a Ryan and I were just talking about that this morning because we were just up on Mullis Pass and we were coming down and we're just like looking around and you can see trails and dirt roads everywhere. And now it's become kind of the epicenter for off-roading four by four. Yeah. Whatever you call it, four wheeling. OHV. Yeah. Yeah. OHV. And you know, it's because of those hard rock miners that we're all able to recreate, you know, with relative safety because they laid that foundation, laid all those trails and roads throughout this incredibly insane, harsh mountain environment. Yeah, It's a great history. I, we just published a, a podcast with Brian Powell and Megan Hicks the other day, and I, we referenced at the end of it, Megan Hicks's article, Hard Rocking, Sharing the Load, which is sort of like the history of the hard rock miners and the San Juan mountain communities, which were born hardy people searching for their for, fortunes in the hills. I just want to repeat for the audience that they should go and read that article. It's fantastic. And, and I mean, you're, you're, that's a, a kind of a nice thing to remember when you're out there and you know, you, you fall, maybe you cut your hand or something and you know, some stuff starts to go wrong. You puke your guts out on top of handies as, as I highly recommend it. I've done it many times. Um, but those little things that are going wrong for you, you're eventually going to get back to a warm bed. These, these, you know, miners, they'd be perched on a hillside in a bunkhouse that was drafty and maybe didn't have enough heat in it, you know, through the winter, through the winter, they were mining in these, these mountains. And, you know, this is a place that gets hundreds and hundreds of inches of snow a year. So your suffering is relative, you know, um, they don't have brothels anymore. So <laughs> there's that, but um, uh, that's what I've been telling myself. It's like, all right, dude, like you just gotta be tough for like a day or a day and a half and then you'll be done. Like you're done. <laughs> Go back to your nice Airbnb, hot You shower. don't have to take a pickaxe and crawl a quarter mile into a mountainside and swing for eight hours. Months just at a like time. hoping to yeah. find some precious mineral. We've got it pretty good. Uh, next question. This one's a, a little bit of a, yeah, this is a one for Dom. This one's for Dom from Joseph Hoffman. What do Hard Rock and Angelus Crest have in common? You know, I think um, as far as like physicality of the course, uh, you know, hard rock's obviously much tougher. Um, but as far as you know, kind of the values and the roots of it, um, they're they're there for the communities, right? Uh, hard rock is is here for the you know, bring economic activity to Silverton. Um, AC, you know, brings a lot of economic activity to Wrightwood. Um, and so they're, they're, they aren't races that are run with a lot of, uh, you know, fanfare necessarily, um, for the competitive aspect, it's for the community communal aspect. And so I think there's that, um, also, you know, AC is one of those, uh, old races that, you know, tries to hold on to its heritage. Hard Rock does the same thing. They don't like to take big, massive jumps and, you know, into the, into the future, so um, it's kind of cool because when you run AC or you run hard rock, this is the, this is not the way Ultron used to be before there was, you know, the circuses of Western States and UTMB and, 
and everything. And even now, like Kavalin is a circus, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like a step back in time to where it's just, you know, some people, um, I, I always liken it the phrase of all ultra running is, is a bunch of people running around the woods. That's all it is. And isn't that so great? Like that the two things still exist and yeah. like, you know, hard rock is still such an important race. AC to a lesser degree, like for those of us who are mm. in the know, like that's a sick course in a race that we want to do. But yeah. like, we can also admit that UTMB and Western States are sick, right? But then like, yeah, you can go run a super grassroots race, hundred mile oh, race at, at AC. And I guess we should mention that you're sort of like the unofficial mayor of Angeles Grass. How many finishes do you have there? Eight or nine. Oh I'm coming up on God. 10. This is what happens when you lose track. I have like a box full of buckles and I'm like, how many are in there? How I'm, many? I'm wow. coming up on 10. Yeah. Next question. Um, Naomi Josevich asked, what mindset do you have to keep in mind to be a successful hard rocker? The mindset question here. Yeah. I really think of it as like, um, it's not you and your ego. It's you and the mountains. And, you know, Dale really harps on that a lot that, you know, the, the Kirk apps and Betsy Kalmeyer's of the world, they, they come in here cause they love it. They want to be here. And everyone gets to the point on the course where they're like, they're crying uncle, you know, and they're like, I don't want this. I don't, I don't deserve this. I've, I've been bad, but I'm not, I haven't been this bad, you know, <laughs> like, and, uh, I think you have to have the mindset of that, that you want to be here, um, that you actually love it. And that, um, you know, all the work that you put in that your family and your loved ones and your friends all put in all the time that you're away. You have to take that as like, this is for this really transcendental experience. It's hard. It's painful, but that's, that's what makes the beer taste so good afterwards. That's what makes, you know, kissing the rock feels so good. Like, you know, people cry when they kiss the rock and it's not because, um, that, that they just had a tough time out there and they're really tired. It's because they, they were, they were changed. They were moved and they're like, they can't believe that they did it, you know? And I think that's a really special thing about the course is you can't believe that you've actually finished it once you actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. I would say on the mindset thing, something I tried to keep in mind in 2021 was really just like, just stay mentally engaged and like understand that you're running hard rock, you know, like it's such a privilege. It's such an honor to be one of the 146 people that get to step to the start line and go experience this amazing hundred mile loop. So if you can kind of keep that appreciation throughout the course of the run, which is much easier said than done, it, it, you finish uh, feeling happy. I mean, I remember, and this is in the video that Ryan made that we released last year about my 2021 race where I crossed mineral Creek mile 98. And I was just like, this is the best day ever. Like I just loved it. I enjoyed it so much. And I had like a long low point, Yeah, but I still just loved it. You know, it was just stay engaged. And, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say to you is that you have to have a mindset. that's not a hundred miles, hundred miles is like, you know, okay, I, I run for 10 minutes and a mile goes by or, or, you know, whatever, like that's just not hard rock. You can run for 10 minutes and you might only get, half a mile, you know, because it's so freaking steep and so technical. So you have to think of it more as like, it's a journey. You're just trying to get around the circle. And when you get there, you get there, you know, whatever the numbers on your watch say, they're kind of irrelevant, you know? Totally. Yeah. Next question. All right. We have two more. Um, second to last one's from Matt Wardaw. What are your favorite course spots and sites along the way? 
I figured this was like, you know, what's your favorite, favorite spot on the course yeah. for me, for me thinking to 2021, I had so much fun on the descent off handies. You mentioned that there is that 500 foot bump on the way down over grass American pass. That's a little bit of a kick in the butt, but once you get over that, that descent down to what was grass gulch now animus forks, that was one of the highlights for me. And then we mentioned it earlier, but the descent down bear Creek to Uray, just a beautiful, lovely runnable downhill trail. Yeah, man, you're stealing mine. Um, I, I, I'll, uh, I guess add on to what you said, cause I a hundred percent agree with those is that, uh, be on top of handies. And actually when you really get to know the course, you've been out here for a few times, you can pick out where you're going, what, what you can see, you can see off in the distance snuffles and, you know, Telluride and all these places. Um, being on handies is really special. Um, I really, you know, being a downhiller, um, I think always the last downhill of the race is really special <laughs> to me. Because, uh, man, like, yeah, finish that last climb, whether it's on uh, Putnam or on uh, Little Giant, you're just like, you feel such joy knowing that gravity's on your side. Yeah, there might be some little rollers, but you're, you get to like, you know, take, you know, look back on everything you did on that last climb. You see, you know, all the stuff behind you, all the, all the, you know, pain and suffering. And then gravity is taking you home. You know, quads may be shot, but who cares? You don't have to climb anymore. So, yeah, I guess it, it probably goes without saying, but the whole course is freaking spectacular. You know, the top of every pass is ridiculous. And it's uh, it's funny, you know, you're on some of the low points where like um, there's this traverse from Sherman to Burroughs Park and you're on a, a dirt road and there's other cars on the road. You're like, oh, you know, annoyed by the cars, but you're looking up at like this, all these different sides of handies. You're orbiting around handies. You're yeah. like, what the hell is this place? It's like a, a total cathedral of a course. So totally. Yeah. Totally. And you can feel that history the whole way around it too, which is fun. Final question. I think this will be a good one for all three of us. Final question. It asks uh, for tips for crewing and pacing at hard rock. Well, because we, we've all, all three of we've us all have done, done both. it. Maybe, why don't you get us started, right? Tell us about um, your experience. Well, for me, I think it's important to remember that, you know, I, I didn't like last year I paced and the previous year I shot, and I don't train for altitude for this. So to drink and take care of yourself. But, um, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's it. Cause I've, I paced my friend, David Huss last year, we went over 13,000 feet three times and, you know, I lived 14 feet above sea level in Seattle and, um, I didn't do any altitude training, but, um, yeah, I don't know because it's, it's easy. Like you said earlier, like you're running and you know, you feel terrible and you look at your watch and you're going at like, 12 minute pace on a flat air instead of eight. And it feels like you're doing sixes and you're like, I suck. I'm the worst athlete of all time. <laughs> so I, my, my advice, I guess would be, um, just to like, remember to be good to yourself and take care of yourself. Totally. It's, it's brutal, especially if you, if you haven't been training for it, you know? Yeah. yeah so altitude does th two things that it, it dries you out and it also, um, suppresses your appetite. So you got to like really be focused on like eating and taking care of yourself, yeah. even when you're not hungry, um, bring candy, you know, a lot of people ask author. the whole like altitude nutrition question too. I don't know if we need to go into that, but yeah, I think, you know, as pacers, though, I, I would just say that what a great way to experience hard rock though, without being in a race and what a great way to prepare yourself for the eventuality that you get in like pacing here is a, obviously a great way to just prepare for that eventuality. 
Yeah, I think they do a thing where they, they pair people up. If you offer to pace somewhere, is it in the gym or is it online? I mean, even just crewing, it's yeah. it's great to just be here, feel the vibes, see the mountains, do some training while you're here. I mean, or even if you're not, uh, don't have anybody to crew or pace, just come to yeah. Hard Rock and be around it. I mean, it's great. But I, I would just say like from the crewing and pacing perspective too, like uh, we mentioned earlier that when things go wrong, it's like, they go, they go, it's just hard. The race is so hard and it's so long that you just kind of need to be prepared to help your runner, like really troubleshoot to stay tough this year. We're likely not going to have weather, but oftentimes mountain weather is something that people deal with. So you're thinking about their safety, making sure they have enough gear. It's a postgraduate event. So there's no mandatory kit. So as crew or pacer, you need to make sure that your runner has those like basic safety elements Poles yeah. pack, lights, waterproof things, extra layers, things like that. You have to kind of think that your runner is basically like a drunk, you know, out of their mind, very, very forgetful, you know, very capable, but very forgetful. And so you got to ask questions and be like, do you need this? Do you need that? Um, how, how are you eating? How are you feeling? And even if they give you a bad answer, like, I'm eating enough, like, you know, probe them a little bit, say, you know, hey, can we, can we try something else? Can we try something else that you like? Yeah. You know, and just go to whatever low, lowest common denominator is. If it's a Reese's cup or something or a cookie, whatever, just to get their blood sugar back up. So fruit, I think was the key for me in 2021. And I think that's something that I'll lean on again this year and that maybe our listeners would find some um, value in. I also wanted to add, I think one of the hardest parts of crewing, depending on the runner you are crewing, like you, we left Chapman, aid station at like, I don't know, 2 a.m. or something. And we had a two hour drive back to Silverton. Maybe it was, we left at midnight and I don't remember what time it was, but it's almost two hours. Maybe it's more than two hours. And there's like animals on the side of the road and you're trying, just trying to stay awake. And it's like the most dangerous highway in America. And you're just like, so, you know, it's, it's something to think about that. Like you are up all night. That's what makes the counterclockwise direction harder for crewing. Because when you go the opposite direction, you have that huge gap between Animus Forks and Mm -hmm. Cunningham at night. So you can probably get like six hours of sleep (laughs) before you go do the final aid station in Cunningham. Going counterclockwise, you're doing all those critical aid stations, Uray, Telluride, Chapman at night for the front runners at least. Something people don't realize is that everyone's like cheering on the winner. It's like, yeah, good job. And it's like, those crews are driving on windy mountain roads at 2 a.m. And you can't, you don't have time to stop because they're going to be at the finish in a few hours. So yeah, uh, try to take care of yourself. Nap when you can, always nap whenever you can. There are gaps and stuff, but man, you got, you have to really be aware, even though you're checking your phone, you're, you're trying to track your run and everything. Like you are a human being as well. You aren't a robot. So yeah, I remember Pace and Joe Grant, those last 30 from Telluride to the finish in 2011. I think it took us like 12 or 13 hours, and I was blown, blown. I had done 100 miler, I think, in my life at that point. It was like the second longest I'd ever been out. I needed a crew and a pacer for myself, and I was like babysitting Joe Grant. So, so Katie so. did a 45-mile push with Howie Stern, and it took her... 27 hours of pacing. <laughs> oh my God. And she got done and she literally just crumpled in a ball and cried. Cause <laughs> I think like she had like his pack had like failed. So she'd give him some water and she was dehydrated and all this. And she was just like destroyed. So, yeah. That's hard rock. And That's what a perfect rock. way to close it out. Any final words from you guys? 
that was an awesome long episode. I hope people really enjoy it. Any, any closing thoughts? Um, you know, I think I just, I can't say enough. You know, there's always going to be a lot of, um, criticism for any race that's popular. Um, I think the criticism is always, you know, it has to come from a place of love and, you know, wanting to see it get better and improve. Um, but at the same time, um, one thing is I've really appreciated over the years of coming here. Cause I've had those criticisms. Like, oh, it should be bigger. It should be more this, that, whatever is that, um, this is a family and you can, you're always welcome in the family. If you want to come and invest some time and energy in here and either be a volunteer crew pace, um, whatever it may be, but, um, it's a really special place. Um, there's a reason they're protective of it because it's so special. Um, anyone can destroy anything. Um, but you know, it takes a lot of love and, and, and heart to, um, keep it going. And so that's why we come out here every year, whether we're in the race or not, it's a really special place. It's a really warm family and um, it's brutal. So be careful what you sign up for and what you wish for. Um, because sometimes you get more than you bargain for. And actually most of the time that we go on a hike out here, we get more than we bargain for. And those are just day hikes. So you can do the math on the race. So. <laughs> Beautiful. Ryan, anything? Um, I, I'll just say I've been to, you know, a lot of races, mostly shooting, some running, some pacing and crewing. And I think for like a hundred miler, it's the most beautiful course I've ever been on. So if you can come out, whether it's to run it or volunteer or crew or pace, come out, spend a week, do it every summer if you can, and just get out on the course or any of the trails that are in the surrounding area. It's you're above tree line the whole time. You're walking through a meadow of flowers at like 12,800 feet and there's mountains still above you. And you're like, how is this possible? It's so beautiful. Love it. Amen. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining to our viewing and listening audience. Hope it was valuable for you. We are now two and a half days, I guess, from the start of the Hard Rock 100. Let's go. Let's, Let's go. go. Let's go. Keep the toast wet. 50, no dry <laughs> toast. No dry toast. Peace out, boys. <laughs>